This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Welcome back. We took a nice two-month break, taking some time to relax and plan. But the podcast is back, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you the many issues we'll be grappling with in 2019. If you are a returning listener, thank you for coming back. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll go back and listen to the 17 episodes we produced last year. The podcast will give you a sense of the wide range of work the ACLU of Pennsylvania is engaged in. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on your podcast app of choice that will help others find us. In this episode, I had the chance to talk with Miriam Krinsky of Fair and Just Prosecution. Miriam explains what FJP does and what it means to be a 21st century prosecutor. We're talking with Miriam because a big part of the ACLU's campaign for smart justice is prosecutor accountability. And as part of that project, the ACLU of Pennsylvania has launched a new website, knowyourdainpa.org. At the site, you can learn more about the many decisions DAs make that impact people's lives and that impact mass incarceration. The site also includes the responses we received to a survey we sent to all 67 DAs in Pennsylvania. Some responded, some did not. On the site, you can see the responses and send a message to your DA. That's knowyourdainpa.org. Let's hear from Miriam. By the way, I know the audio in this interview is not ideal, but I strongly encourage you to stay with it because Miriam has a lot of important ideas to share about how to shape prosecutorial policy in a way that is fair and just. Here we go. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, fair and just prosecution. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for the interest and always happy to have these discussions. So I use the phrase fair and just prosecution, and that is actually the name of your organization. So what is FJP and how and why did the organization come about? Well, we are a relatively young organization, and we've come about based on an incredible moment that we find ourselves in. We recognize that we're seeing somewhat of a paradigm shift in the field of criminal justice, in particular, in the attitudes and policies and vision of newly elected prosecutors. We're starting to see a new normal come about where a new generation of leaders have come into office with a very different agenda and view of what they should own and what the role of prosecutors should be. Um, they are increasingly recognizing and running on platforms that recognize that old views around being tough on crime, around trying to punish our way out of individual struggles with substance use or mental illness or poverty just haven't worked, and that we need to look for new strategies, and we need to try to shrink the size of the justice system, and we need to try to ensure that prosecutors take to heart their role as ministers of justice and what it means to forge a justice system and a prosecutor's office that really embraces accountability and the pursuit of fair and equitable results. So we try to bring those individuals together. Um, We create 
a space where they're not alone, where they're with colleagues who think the way they do. Um, many of them are uh, individuals who broke a glass ceiling in assuming office. Uh, they're first generation in um, the sorts of uh, imprint that they're bringing to the office. And so we try to bring them together as a community to learn, um, create opportunities to provide them with resource, resources and research and access to experts from around the country. We try to bring them to places within the U.S. and have even started to enable them to look at models outside the country that are thinking differently about what a criminal justice system can and should be and how prosecutors lead their way to that ultimate new different vision. Um, and we've tried to bring their collective voice together to create opportunities through sign-on letters, through amicus briefs, for them to really show that the thinking in the field has, is different and to help them as a group tackle some of the tremendous challenges that they face as they try to bring about these incredibly important changes in the field. Yeah, we've definitely seen a shift in the way people think about prosecutors and even the way prosecutors think about themselves and their job. Why do you think prosecutors are a critical part of criminal justice reform? Why should individuals who are committed to those reforms consider joining a DA's office? Well, I think it's at the end of the day, um, DAs and prosecutors are the ones who control the front door of the justice system. Um, they hold the key to somebody's entry into the system, um, and they're going to control in many ways the trajectory and the lifespan of a case. So they decide in the first instance whether someone's going to be charged with a violation of criminal laws. Incredibly weighty decision that drives so much else in terms of what's going to happen in the life of that individual, what's going to happen in the lives of their family, and how's their community going to be impacted. They decide whether an individual will be charged as an adult or a juvenile if it's a young person. They decide whether to charge a mandatory minimum offense, or in some instances, offenses that may carry a life without parole um, sentence or even a death penalty. And then by virtue of the fact that the vast majority of cases are resolved not through our image of law and order or Perry Mason through a trial by a jury of one peers, but in fact, the vast majority of cases are going to be decided um, over 95% uh, by a plea bargain. And prosecutors are often the ones uh, who hold the weighty decisions in regard to what that plea bargain and disposition is going to look like. So they're really going to chart somebody's life through the criminal justice system. At a broader systemic level, prosecutors with the incredible bully pulpit as elected leaders that they have are often going to be the ones who can spark reform and light a fire under changes in the criminal justice system, or conversely, who can be the death knell for an effort to change the justice system. So they often have as well not just the power over an individual case, but really the opportunity and the ability to move the justice system in a dramatically different direction. And I think that with that incredible array um, of authority and discretion and ability to hit the reset button and change where we are now, we really need individuals who are passionate about rethinking where our justice system has been 
to be willing to engage, to be willing to elect the right people, to be willing as lawyers to join them in this journey and trying to pivot and turn the justice system. So there's been a lot, there is a lot of talk about the size of our prison populations. Here in Pennsylvania, our state prison population is at 47,000 people with another 30,000 plus in the county jails. And that is a massive increase over a 39-year period. You had a career as a prosecutor. Uh, What's your take on how we got here? Well, you know, in many ways, I think I was kind of at ground zero of watching the beginning of what we've seen play out in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and in other parts of the country. Um, I prosecuted during the 80s and 90s, and what I saw was the startup of a trajectory that has played out and caused the United States really to part company with many parts of the world in terms of a buildup of mass incarceration that um, that is unique and that, you know, is, is a sorry history for us. What we saw in the 80s and 90s was the fueling of fear, the notion that we could incarcerate our way out of individuals' struggles, out of substance use issues, out of um, mental illness, out of individuals struggling with poverty and by virtue of that, engaging in conduct that brought them into contact with the justice system. So we saw escalating penalties, um, the advent and explosion of mandatory minimums. We saw more and more individuals being brought into the justice system, including young people, for acting out or engaging in conduct where we were punishing them rather than addressing the problem and returning them to our community without having addressed the issues that caused them to fall into this web and causing them to cycle and often families um, to be fractured in communities, to be damaged in the process, where we started to create this revolving door of the justice system. And I think we've also seen the advent of policies relating to cash bail, um, relating to policies that have incarcerated individuals before we've had any determination of guilt or innocence, and simply putting them into our jails by virtue of their inability to pay cash bail, meaning that a country that has long embraced the view that we shouldn't have a debtor's prison has really been de facto creating a process where individuals have ended up in our jails waiting for trials, sometimes for months or years on end, and being there not because they pose a danger to the community, but simply because they can't pay the price tag for freedom and for return to their family. Um, We've also seen at the back end probation and parole and community supervision practices that have led to long periods of time when people return to the community where they're not simply under the eye of the punitive system, but where they're being subjected to violations and return to the justice system for technical things. for using marijuana, for failing to show up in an appointment or in court, often because they're out trying to get a job or attending to the needs of the family. Um, We've seen a justice system that has put in place fines and fees and monetary penalties that, again, penalize individuals based simply on poverty and cause them to have a very difficult time getting their head above the crashing waves that are coming at them as the justice system as we often 
revoke driver's licenses um, and, and put them into that vicious cycle again of reincarceration based simply on the struggles that are a manifestation of poverty. I'm glad you mentioned cash bail and probation and parole because those are two priorities here in Pennsylvania. Now, related to that, FJP recently released a document called 21 Principles for 21st Century Prosecutors. It includes a discussion of cash bail and of probation parole reform and uh, some other issues as well. Um, Who was the audience for that document? What's the objective of the principles? So we've often been asked, you know, what is a reform-minded or progressive prosecutor, and um, and what does what does the finish line look for look like for the change that we're trying to bring about? And these twenty-one principles were really intended to try to bring that vision forward, to try to create a blueprint for what are we trying to achieve, and with the focus on an audience of both newly elected prosecutors, DAs, state's attorneys, and others who have come into office um, who are trying to translate their campaign vision and promises into reality in their offices um, and, and attempt to give them a little bit of that roadmap of what can it look like and what at a high level should be their objectives and what are some of the examples of those higher objectives, and where do we see these kinds of changes around the country? So that was our primary audience. Um, We also recognize that there are many in our community who are trying to understand what should they be expecting from the individuals they elected to these jobs, or if an election is upcoming, what should they be asking candidates, and what does the vision look like for the kind of elected DA that they're hoping to see lead their community in a different direction. So part of the principal's objective as well was to provide solutions to the problems that we're grappling with and a deeper understanding for advocates or members of the community or even simply perhaps, you know, the standard voter um, to have something to pick up and be able to have a sense of what is it that I want and what does it look like and what should I be asking those in these positions or those seeking these positions in terms of how they're going to get us there. So we don't have the time uh, on this podcast to talk about all 21 principles, but I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe zero in on a few of the the key recommendations. Sure, and certainly we'd encourage folks to go to our website and and pull up the full document and peruse it um, and see what might be in there that speaks to them. So the principles in general are built on two fundamental pillars. How do we shrink the size and footprint of the justice system? How do we reduce incarceration and remove the justice system from areas like criminalizing mental illness or drug use and make the space for public health and mental health and others to come in and treat the problem rather than punishing it? And how do we increase the fairness and equity and accountability of the justice system? And in that regard, a number of the principles look at things like how do we end the poverty penalty and address fines and fees and and end cash bail? Um, How do we think about keeping law enforcement accountable and ensuring that prosecutors fill that space uh, by independently policing the police? How do we think about processes for 
looking at the integrity of past convictions. And how can justice be both forward-looking and backward-looking? What do we need to be doing to expunge past convictions and seal records in instances where individuals have paid their price and really deserve an opportunity for a second chance? And how can we address things like excessive sentences where today we would never have sought a sentence that was imposed and an individual has spent perhaps decades in custody, no longer poses any more risk to our community, and we're simply throwing away money and throwing away the individual by continuing to incarcerate them. So how do we think about that, those sorts of issues and recognize you know, in, in many ways that we need to understand science and treat kids with a recognition of their brain development and where they're at. So those are a number of the areas that the principles address in concrete ways and also with examples that stand up best practices. So as you noted before, we are seeing changes uh, in prosecutors' offices in multiple jurisdictions, Philadelphia among them. How do we get where we want to go? What's the path forward? And what do you think are the hurdles and challenges prosecutors who are committed to a new vision for the system are likely to encounter? Yeah, so I think I think moving forward, um, fundamentally, I think, starts with a recognition of let's learn from our mistakes. Um, let's recognize what hasn't worked and that punishing our way out of the many areas where the justice system has engaged has simply created generational cycles of poverty and despair um, and incarceration, and that we need to do things differently, and that the community is behind different approaches. The community is demanding change and recognizing that prevention is a better investment than warehousing people in our prisons and jails. And and so I think fundamentally a pathway forward means let's not keep doing the same thing that we've done over and over again and somehow presuming that tough on crime policies or rhetoric are worth embracing or promoting. Let's learn and, and try to shift those paradigms and lift up the successes and the ways that things can be done differently and are working in doing them differently so that when things do go wrong, we've educated our community um, and the broader public as well about the many successes for every one example that too often gets the limelight that goes wrong. And I think that you know sort of ties to the challenges. Too often the focus is on those singular examples of the instance where the justice system is willing to exercise compassion and mercy and the rare case um, of the individual who does go out and do something that's tragic and that's horrible and that deserves um, accountability and a consequence, but really is the exception rather than the rule. And we need to tell the story of the rule more than we do. I think we also need to find ways for new elected leaders to hit a reset button and change culture. And that's a tremendous challenge. Prosecutors' offices are filled with lawyers who are committed public servants, but they've been doing their job in the same way for a long time in many instances. And breaking down that culture isn't easy. And prosecutors who are new in office need the resolve to go in and do it and need to try to better educate the members of their office 
to see a different vision, they need to fill the office with individuals who bring the rich diversity of our community into those jobs and who are more reflective of the community that they serve. And I think they need to ensure that prosecutors, through their training and otherwise engaging in the community, are more proximate to the individuals who their weighty decisions are impacting every single day. And so we need to find ways to ensure that that proximity is happening and that you know, prosecutors aren't isolated in a bubble, that they've walked the hallways of the jails where individuals at the other end and on the other side of the courtroom from them are being sent. They know what the consequences are of the advocacy that they put forth and that we're dealing with some of the challenges systemically that are wedded to the status quo. You know, I think we need to recognize that justice system leaders aren't going to embrace these changes and we need to find ways to support new elected prosecutors when other leaders in their community push back on the change that they're trying to bring, um, and to recognize that some may even have a fiscal investment in the status quo, whether it's bail industries or, you know, the many who um, are fiscally wedded to our current status quo and the size of our correction systems. So we need a counterweight to some of those instances and, and, and some of those um, interests that's going to push back when those constituencies push back on reform. And you're saying all this because you have firsthand knowledge of how those offices work. You've had an extensive career as a prosecutor. Uh, you've also served on numerous commissions to address reforms, including in the Los Angeles County Jails and in the county sheriff's office. How did you personally end up here? Has reform always interested you, or is it something you came to over time? Well, I've, I've always had an interest um, in how our justice system functions, and um, it really started from my decade and a half as a prosecutor when, uh, in a job I loved, but where I felt in many ways we weren't always doing right by not just the individuals who came through the doors of the justice system, but also our community at large, that we were spending far too much money um, throwing people away for decades on end and then returning them to the community where they posed often a greater risk of, um, of recidivating, of falling back into the kind of life's challenges that led them into the justice system to begin with. And, and when I left my work as a prosecutor, um, I didn't think I'd come back to it. And, and I left it to do work around children's advocacy to try to capture windows of opportunity for young people before those windows had closed and before they found themselves too often in a downward spiral, spiral um, and you know, kind of headed on the trajectory into the justice system. In doing work on reform of juvenile justice, reform of law enforcement through the years I spent, as you mentioned, um, investigating our L.A. Sheriff's Department, um, and then in working with some system change agents, I became a big believer in the notion that we can be very effective in bringing about system reform if we find the right leaders and we help them to succeed and bring about change from within. And that's what led to my work with fair and just prosecution. It's that moment I referred to earlier that I think we're in, where we have these amazing leaders in place, 
and my firm conviction that if we can enable them to get it right, if we can bring about a new way of thinking about criminal justice through the inside clout of prosecutors, we can do so much more to truly bring about the kinds of changes that wonderful advocacy groups like yours and others have been working on for so long. So 2019 is a big year for DAs in Pennsylvania because we have DA elections in odd-numbered years. I prefer not to call them off years because when it comes to voting, there's no such thing as an off year. <laughs> um, but if, if a DA is listening to this, what message do you want them to hear? So I think what they will hear, what I hope they will hear, um, not just from my mouth, but even far more importantly, from the drumbeat in their community is that voters are increasingly understanding both the clout that they have and the need to do things differently. Um, We know from so many polls, polls the ACLU has done and others as well, that members of our community don't believe that we need to be piling on the kinds of penalties that we have for far too long. They embrace the idea that we can be diverting far more individuals than we have been from the justice system, that investing in education, in housing, in mental health services, in treatment for individuals who need it um, when they're struggling with substance use disorder, that those are smarter practices, they're cheaper approaches, and they work in terms of keeping our communities safer. I hope candidates um, will take that to heart. I hope they'll also understand the moment that we find ourselves in. And while realizing that these changes aren't easy and that the challenges we talked about earlier um, are going to be there, that they'll need to be moving, you know, some boulders up a steep incline, I hope they still realize and embrace the view and take to heart their role as ministers of justice and that they need a certain degree of impatience. That I hope they realize that every single day people are coming into the justice system and the results aren't in too many cases ones that we can all, I think, look at and say that was the right result or that was the just result or that did the right thing by the individual and our community. So I hope that they'll have a little bit of a vision but also a sense of urgency in bringing it about and in just not being willing to tolerate what we've tolerated for too long and maybe kind of a dose of that righteous indignation with what we've done in our nation and the need to be doing more to change that and to change it, you know, not a year from now or a month from now, but to change it starting tomorrow. So where can people go for more information about FJP's work? So I would welcome them to go to our website, which is fairandjustprosecution.org. They can, on our website, add their name to our email list by clicking on our homepage to stay connected. They are certainly welcome to look at our issue briefs and the resources, including the 21 principles. And we would welcome them to follow me on Twitter at KrinskyMAK. And, you know, certainly through my Twitter account as well, we try to put out information on the great work that's going on 
through the elected DAs and other partners that we work with all across the country. All right, Miriam, well, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it and appreciate the important work that you're doing. Well, thank you for the interest. Thank you again to Miriam Krinsky for joining the show today. You can learn more about FJP at fairandjustprosecution.org. You can also follow Miriam on Twitter at KrinskyMAK. And again, be sure to check out knowyourdainpa.org. See if your DA responded to our survey. If they did, you can send them a note to say thank you right from the site. If they did not, send them a note to tell them that you expect them to respond, to be transparent, and to support smart justice. That's a wrap on episode 18. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.